This is an ABC podcast. When is violent speech actually okay? This week on Download This Show, at least one major social media company have somewhat controversially decided that there actually is a time and place for it. Also on the show, would you pay to get a background check on a potential date? Plus, why Bitcoin ATMs, where you can cash out all manner of digital currencies, are being shut down in the UK, and the extraordinary amount of cryptocurrencies being raised by Ukraine, of all places. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell, and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guests this week, we have Ariel Bogle, reporter with ABC Investigations. Welcome back to the show. Hi, good to be here. And senior writer at CNET, Daniel Van Boom. Welcome. Thank you for having me via the internet. It is nice to be had via the internet. We are all being had via the internet today in one way, shape or the other. Tinder has been under fire for safety issues for a number of years now, and they've unveiled something that they suggest might help. Ariel, walk me through exactly what they've announced. Yeah, so Tinder has announced that some users, I think largely in the US, will see a background check tool going forward. So this is a partnership between Tinder, uh, which is owned by Match Group, and Garbo, which is a non-profit background check provider. And actually, uh, Match Group invested, I think, a year or two back in Garbo. So there's a strong connection there. So I think essentially when you're using the app, uh, you'll have the option of going of pulling up a background check by providing your potential date sort of name, uh, phone number, details like that to, you know, I guess, pull up the criminal record of sorts or at least charges relevant to your safety on the date with them. Yeah, and no, look, it's probably worth pointing out there's there's no single feature that is, a, uh, I guess, a smoking gun for all of the issues that can come out of uh, dating apps and, and safety issues around dating apps. But how does it actually work? Like what sort of information would you get from that, Daniel? Well, you'd get uh, particularly violent uh, crimes committed by the person you're searching and they make a point to not include, say, uh, light drug charges for uh, drug possession of small amounts or like traffic fines or vagrancy, which is a weird thing to include. But uh, so they're not including those things. Uh, and so it's really more focused on violent crimes, DUI, things like that. And I think the main concern that people have is whether the net that this casts will catch the people most likely to commit violent crimes um, against their dates. So this all kind of started uh, from a 2019 report, report in ProPublica, uh, which assessed uh, 150 cases of sexual assault committed on match platforms where people, women were matched with uh, men and then on the first, second, third date, violent crimes were co- committed against them. And in that report, they did note that of the 150 crimes, only about 10% of the men who committed those crimes had um, violent crimes or particularly sex- uh, sexually violent crimes on their criminal record. So in a situation like this, you'd only be catching one out of 10 people, which is, of course, progress. Um, you're still stopping, you know, 10% of heinous crimes occurring. 
but there is a concern that obviously a lot of the people who commit these kind of crimes kind of evade the justice system. Mm. Ariel, what do you think? Do you think it's, it's likely to be effective? Yeah, those uh, concerns raised there, like that's completely accurate. A huge number of people that commit sexual violence um, would not be in this system. You know, most uh, instances of sexual violence are not even reported to the police, so there's no chance of a record. I guess it's important too that, and other people have brought this up in concern about this new feature. I mean, I was reading in The Guardian, uh, Nicole Badera, who's a academic from the University of Michigan, was worried that it would kind of inject a false sense of security, that if you look somebody up and they have no record that you might go into a date without thinking about your sort of your, your own safety or thinking about uh, where you're going to meet or who you, like your fr- whether you're telling a friend that you're going on this date before going, things like that. And there's also the issue too that any records that are in a background check system are really influenced by the priorities and uh, issues with criminal justice overall. So it's you know, potentially likely that certain populations um, in the United States, perhaps black and Hispanic people, are far more likely to have interactions with police full stop. And so they might be more likely to turn up in a system like this. And so, you know, adding that element of potential like discrimination in the data itself. So there's a whole range of issues here that could affect any kind of background check system. I suppose overall the issues with Tinder and and assault has in the past also been about reporting. So the ability to report any uh, bad interaction you have on a date or a crime to the app and making sure that there's a, a record there to share with police or share with the company. And Tinder has made some changes to its platform to correct this issue, make sure people can't delete their accounts and delete all evidence of interaction, for example. But overall, you know, this is certainly not a silver bullet. And I think there's a lot of legitimate concerns that this tool, yeah, could could in- include this sort of false sense of security, but also be discriminatory in some ways. I suppose there's also privacy and surveillance issues with this as well, uh, Daniel, that I suppose need to be kind of examined. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the other concerns that's been raised about this is you're instituting a long-term punishment for people who may, because obviously there's a, there is something to be said about people who committing crimes in the past, uh, you know, that's an indicator of committing crimes in the future. But then there is also t- something to be said for people who uh, commit certain crimes and then, you know, they do their time and then they they become rehabilitated and they're, you know, trying to start a second life. And things like this kind of prevent those people uh, from from doing that, from creating a second life. So there's a lot of murky, um, like, grey areas in this set. Like, like Ariel said, definitely not a silver bullet. The other thing I'd add is that Tinder users will have to pay to do this. It's, it, you get the first two for free, and then after that in the US it's $2.50. Um, I think if they were going to go into this properly, like if this was really a solution, uh, the way to do that would just to be integrating it into the onboarding process, surely, uh, which they do for Match.com. Uh, already, which is another one of their platforms. Uh, But they say they don't have enough uh, data on their Tinder users to do that. But, I mean, if this was a solution that was going to help, it feels like they could pretty easily collect that data and and do this from the outset. Ariel, where do you stand on the, I guess, the potential for the the, the long-term usage of the data and, and the surveillance and the privacy issues? Well, you know, I'm always nervous. I think it's <laughs> in my de facto position on this show is about the normalization of using data brokers and uh, criminal record systems like this. Like, it is an issue of normalization. I think maybe we're not quite as familiar with this in Australia as in the United States. But, you know, even getting a babysitting job in the United States, I went through more than a police check. So here, if you want to work with children, of course, you 
often have to get a police check. Uh, but there it was a complete background check. And all that data um, ended up without my permission in a whole range of data broker databases, as I found out years later. And so there is this issue with digital trails and it's, it's a toss-up, right, because safety really has to be paramount, trust and safety, and making sure that people are protected and not uh, liable to go through anything, any kind of trauma and assault like, like has happened um, on Tinder dates. But at the same time, there is that ongoing normalisation of data collection and the use of criminal justice data in this way is not quite how it was intended to be used. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guests this week, Ariel Bogle and Daniel Van Boom. Mark Fennell is my name. And Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin, of course, is a, a cryptocurrency that primarily exists in the, the realm of the digital, but there are Bitcoin cash machines that exist around the world. But in the UK at the moment, they're being ordered to shut down. Daniel, why? Yeah, this is a weird one. So um, th- last week, Britain's Financial Conduct Authority, which is essentially their financial watchdog, uh, they declared that all of the Bitcoin and crypto ATMs operating in the country are doing so illegal. Uh, so essentially the reason is that these, uh, the, the particular ATMs in question are ones where you put in cash and you get back Bitcoin. Uh, you get Bitcoin sent to your digital wallet. And so what that essentially is is, an, is a cryptocurrency exchange operating uh, on a really small scale. And so the FCA was essentially saying, if you want to have a Bitcoin ATM, you have to uh, be able to declare that you are operating as an exchange. Um, And none of the 80 plus uh, ATMs in the country uh, could could, uh, hit that benchmark. Right. (laughs) That seems, was there at least some warning for this, Ariel? Did they see it coming? I think there's been a bit of back and forth about this for a while. So this new notice from the SCA also comes after a judge dismissed an appeal from a crypto ATM operator in the UK. I think it's called GD Plus. And it had attempted to get a license from the FCA. But the FCA argued that it couldn't give the license because uh, there was no way the company could comply with regulations designed to prevent money laundering. And that's ultimately um, what the court upheld as well. So I think there was a bit of warning here and actually made me think about... um, crypto ATMs in Australia because I think it was, it was probably around like 2017 you couldn't like go a day without a press release from some crypto company <laughs> announcing it and put like yeah. an ATM at X news agency in like DUI or in Melbourne or wherever else. So it made me really want to go out and find all those ones because you really don't see it that much no. here either. No, I remember that <laughs> because we were on air that year and I remember just being like, I keep seeing these releases but I've never once seen one in the wild. <laughs> Like, where are they? Um, Daniel, I mean, there is, a, I guess, something to consider here where obviously cryptocurrency is primarily something that exists in the realm of the digital. That's, that's stating the obvious. But at some point, people do want to be able to take that value, that currency, and turn it into other things, whether, it, you know, whether it's simple fiat currencies like the Australian dollar or indeed sometimes actual cash. Does it ha- do you think it'll have a material, this sort of this, this chilling on ATMs, uh, particularly in the UK, but do you think it'll have a chilling effect on take-up for cryptocurrencies more generally? I don't think so. So that was the kind of confusing thing to me is that this, this, if, if you're going to, uh, you know, like tackle cryptocurrency, this seems like one of the most like minor issues. So if the problem is money laundering, I, I would imagine this is just guesswork on my part, but I'm, I'm imagining they're kind of trying to um, make it harder for like small time, like drug dealers or pe- people of that nature, not like huge amounts of money to, because they can take the cash, take it to the Bitcoin machine, 
turn it to Bitcoin and they can, can hide their ill-gotten gains. Um, but if you're talking about large-scale financial money laundering, these ATMs, I don't imagine, would have been a really big ticket for that. I mean, uh, people mostly avoided them. Like People who actually care about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies typically avoided them because had, they had very large fees. And people who were serious about laundering their money would probably go through a decentralized exchange where you could uh, move a lot more money a lot bigger amount of money without kind of any of the inconvenience and cheaper. So, uh, yeah, I don't imagine this will have a huge effect. The other thing is that the FCA went, they, they, they kind of pointed to money laundering issues, but then one of the statements they released was along the lines of, Hey, we've said for a while now that, you know, if you invest in crypto, you could lose all your money. So we're trying to protect uh, consumers in that regard, which kind of sounds like intense advertising or maybe anti-gambling advice. So the reason that they the reasons that they claimed in the statement that they gave are kind of like there's a bit of a gap there. But um yeah, I don't imagine this will have a huge effect to be honest. It's kind of confusing that they went for kind of a non-entity in the crypto sphere, if you know. I just uh, I just got hung up on the phrase person who takes their money laundering seriously. Like just feels like something you want to be endorsed with for LinkedIn. <laughs> it's like I'm really serious about my money laundering. <laughs> You know, other people have other hobbies, but money laundering is mine. Ariel, I mean, for for a long time, people have talked about um, cryptocurrencies as a, you know, as something that is prominent when it comes to, I want to say, clandestine transfers of, of, of value that is useful for things like money laundering and whatnot. Is that true like it, 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 like because the thing is like everything's sort of recorded right in, in the blockchain so is it actually a particularly good method for if you do want to launder money or is that just sort of um a bit of smoke and mirrors well as an expert in money laundering, no <laughs> you should um, like she takes it are, really <laughs> seriously you guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah, underline seriously. Yes. Um, well, I think, of course, there's. it's really hard to put a number on money laundering in the cryptocurrency sphere. But I think there, when we look at the blockchain and the way that you can track transactions on the blockchain, uh, that can be a bit of a distraction because, of course, there are myriad ways to mask transactions nevertheless. So, for example, Bitcoin tumblers, uh, this is a sort of a tool to uh, mix up the wallet addresses where money is being sent, making it harder to track. There are, of course, uh, privacy coins like Monero, which are specifically designed to avoid um, transaction. They try and obscure the wallet to which uh, cryptocurrency, that cryptocurrency is sent. There's, I mean, there's a whole range of ways to mask transactions. Although, of course, uh, on the other hand, um, financial authorities are sort of developing their techniques here as well. So there have been plenty of successful seizures of cryptocurrency wallets and tracking of money laundering. I think, too, it's worth pointing out that ATMs have always had a role to play in money laundering. You might remember a few years ago, uh, there was a series of Australian banks who were pinged for failing to abide by money laundering um, regulations here in Australia by failing to report uh, transactions on ATMs of more than 10 grand. Um, and there have been plenty of sort of money laundering syndicates here in Australia that used ATMs. So I think uh, last year, Oztrack put out an announcement about a $62 million money laundering syndicate that largely used ATMs. So <laughs> the, the humble ATM still has a strong role to play, I feel. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. Our guest this week, Daniel Van Boom from CNET and Ariel Bogle from ABC Investigations. 
One thing that is particularly worth noting with cryptocurrency is that uh, many say it's being used to help uh, Ukraine. In fact, Ukraine have raised how much money, Daniel Van Boom, in the last couple of months? Uh, $64 million since the invasion. So, yeah, $54 million straight to the government and another $10 million-ish to NGOs since the 24th of February. So how does that actually work? And and how do you know that it's all going to the government or aid groups? Like, how, how does that actually play out? It's a really interesting one, because I think in the public zeitgeist, Bitcoin and Ether and cryptocurrencies in general have just been, you know, speculative assets, which people enjoy seeing the price go up and especially down of. Um, but what's happened in Ukraine, I think, uh, is kind of forging a bit of a new path in the sense that crypto is actually kind of doing things that traditional money probably couldn't do or at least couldn't do as well. Um, So uh, after the invasion, uh, after Russia invaded Ukraine, Ukraine's digital minister posted the wallet addresses for uh, the government's government's Ethereum, Bitcoin and Tether wallet addresses into which people could send directly their Ethereum, uh, Bitcoin and Tether coins. Um, And that proved to be a huge success. The Ukrainian Twitter account uh, retweeted that, which is uh, it's weird for a country to have a Twitter account and to retweet wallet addresses, but it totally worked because, yeah, it was five, five to 10 million in the first few days and it's been nearly 60 million since. And I think the two important things about why this works better in some ways for cryptocurrency as compared to traditional currency, it's quicker. So it, you know, international bank transfers can take days. Um, and also it's more, it can be more transparent. Obviously, there's a lot of dodgy stuff that goes on in crypto, as we just discussed. But um, you, there's a transaction history for everything on every blockchain, right? So if I send, uh, you know, one Bitcoin to uh, the Ukrainian government, there's a transaction on the blockchain that I can point to and say, hey, I did that. And in the same way, uh, when people um, are going about uh, fundraising. There was a group that uh, made a uh, NFT collection, which they gave all the proceeds of. They could say, you know, in pure transparency, like, hey, we raised all this money. You can see all the ether we raised and we sent it to these three charities and you can see those transactions here. Um, so it's really cool in the transparency regard as we're like synonymizing Bitcoin and ether with uh, transparency. But in this case, I think it's, it applies. Uh, and also the speed at which you can donate and which that money can be used. Is this something that normal currency can't do, Ariel? Is, I'm trying to work out why crypto has become the the go-to here. Is it just because the sort of people that care about this issue happen to have cryptocurrencies or is there something specifically that the the cryptocurrencies, like the ones that Daniel is referring to there, can do that, that normal currencies can't? Well, Daniel did point out at that swiftness of transaction. I think this is really a story that's really playing out say you donate Ethereum to the Ukrainian government's um, Ethereum wallet, what happens next? That's what we actually really don't know at the moment. How are they using that Ethereum on the other side? Are they able to convert it to cash and use it to buy things for, you know, for civilian um, protection for the Ukrainian army? That next step, I think, is really unclear. And there's been a lot of coverage of Ukraine's kind of position as a highly sort of tech-savvy population in many ways. So the Ukrainian government, you know, 
of course, prior to this conflict, was really marketing their population as highly uh, tech savvy. A lot of tech companies actually had employees there. And by some analysis, Ukraine was one of the world's biggest adopters of cryptocurrency. And so there was a kind of a population there that was already savvy and probably already quite familiar with the ins and outs of cryptocurrency. So a lot of uh, Ukrainians who are not based in the country at the moment, but want to contribute to the effort have been, as Daniel said, creating like NFT collections to sell fundraising as well as that um, move by the government itself to ask for donations. But I think when it comes to examining the role of cryptocurrencies in this conflict, we don't know the end of the story yet. Mm. Is it something that you can see might be picked up in other conflicts, Daniel? I mean, I know that is just pure speculation, but we're living through a very unusual conflict at a very, very unusual point in time. Do you think is a specific thing to Ukraine in this particular conflict or is it something that might happen again for, say, you know, disaster relief. Um, you know, we've seen huge outpourings of, of, of money around you know, bushfires and floods. Is it something that you could imagine gets transferred into other kinds of uh, catastrophes? Yeah, I, I absolutely can because uh, I think in that case, again, it's the well, – well, again, it's the, the swiftness of transfer which counts. You know, if you, if you have a, a wallet that has a transaction history, you can typically get – um, a, a transfer in less than a minute or certainly less than 10 minutes, uh, which obviously makes a huge difference when you're talking about those disaster relief situations where people need stuff like now. I definitely agree with what Ariel pointed out in the sense that we don't yet know how um, the funds are being used. Uh, and obviously that will be an ongoing problem with, with every charitable enterprise uh, of this nature. You can kind of get the funds to them, but you don't really know how efficiently or how um, or how they're going about using those funds. But I definitely can say, especially in with uh, this happening and with the government raising so much money from crypto, I can see, you know, uh, relief efforts in the future having this kind of thing ready to go, uh, as opposed to the Ukrainian government who's kind of... Ukraine, as, as Ariel pointed out, is uh, quite crypto savvy, but it's been a bit of an ad hoc thing because obviously it's an ad hoc situation. But I think in future efforts of this kind, they'll definitely have their crypto infrastructure more ready to go in terms of both having those wallets ready and also having the means to transfer that that crypto to you know dollars or or whichever currency they need but i also would like to say that um i, d I don't, definitely don't want to come across as like a pure crypto apologist because i think in the way that we are you know seeing this play out um in regards to how those funds are being used the flip side of how crypto could potentially be used is russian oligarchs and and um the people deep in the Russian economy, which, are, which is obviously heavily sanctioned, the degree to which they can avoid those sanctions uh, using cryptocurrency. There's been a lot of speculation and a lot of experts say they can't. But again, I feel like that's one of those, that's one of those situations where it will play out. And so it, it would probably be naive to say that, hey, crypto has been a pure good in this situation. Um, but it, it, again, I think it points to the fact that crypto for better or for worse, was designed to be more than, you know, something people trade on and gawk at the price of and that it can actually do things that, you know, money maybe can't. I think it's safe to say this whole situation is lacking in things that be classified as pure good uh, across the board. Ariel, just coming back to that point earlier, do you think crypto will have a role in, in other kinds of fundraising efforts in the future or is it still, you know, the preserve of, um, and I mean this with love because it's download this show, nerds? Well, yeah, I... I think it will, if it, as it continues to be a you know parallel or intertwined financial system on top of like 
the banking system and cash and all the rest. I, I don't see why it would not have a role to play in future conflicts. But that issue with Russia and sanctions is, you know, is probably just as well worth watching because, of course, major, most of the major cryptocurrency exchanges, Coinbase and others, have to abide by the sanction regime introduced by the United States, by Australia, by the UK and others. Uh, that really applies to those Russian oligarchs who have been sanctioned or Russian institutions that have been sanctioned. The transfers of just individual Russians for now is is allowed to continue by all accounts. But in terms of using cryptocurrency to evade sanctions, I think that's the story that everybody will be keeping a very close eye on. And any model that grows for Russia in that regard will be one mirrored by other states that are subject to sanction or other institutions that are uh, heavily scrutinised by law enforcement, for example. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Staying on the conflict in Ukraine at the moment, interesting news out of the world of social media. Facebook and Instagram have acknowledged that they're actually allowing things that they wouldn't normally allow with other conflicts when it comes to to Russia. Ariel, walk me through this. This is an unusual one. Yeah, and there's been a lot of back and forth, I think, on this topic. So, Uh, The other week, Reuters reported that Facebook and Instagram users in some countries would be allowed to call for violence against Russians and Russian soldiers in the context of the Ukraine invasion. So they were going to temporarily allow posts that say called for death to the Russian president, Putin, or the leader of Belarus in countries like Russia, Ukraine and Poland. Uh, That was the report. But then over the weekend, there's been more clarification from Meta's president of global affairs, Nick Clegg. Apparently, he clarified in an internal memo that um, calls for the death of a head of state remain banned. So I think it's still a little grey about what exactly has changed here, but certainly it seems like Meta has issued new guidance about uh, content that condones the harm of Russian soldiers within this conflict, within the, uh, the context of the Ukraine invasion. This is an interesting one because there's been so much talk around uh, what Facebook and, and Meta, I guess as a, as a company more broadly, does and doesn't allow in terms of safety and, and sort of social cohesion. And it, it's hard not to read this, Daniel, as slow slightly flying the face of the direction they've been headed for the last couple of years. Yeah, it is. Um, but I would say that uh, I, th- I think any kind of attempt to, like, really regulate uh, speech is going to, like, intrinsically bring up these, like, kind of arbitrary-sounding rules. Like, it sounds so crazy to read a report that says, like, oh, Facebook's going to temporarily um, going to temporarily allow people to say death to Russian soldiers. Um, but it's hard to imagine any kind of, uh, like rule set that will really allow people who are realistically in those, in that region going to say things like that on Facebook, uh, with like the push towards more civil discourse that Facebook has been, you know, pushing for over the past few years. So, um, it feels like a bit of an unwinnable situation here in that I think no matter what Facebook does, they probably end up looking a bit silly. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's an extremely tough one and probably a pretty fast-flowing situation within Facebook itself. So, like, the the sort of uh, a drip-drip of report out about this issue has shown maybe that they are revising in real time. And two, Nick Clegg also clarified, according to this uh, reporting about this internal memo, that it it will only be people in Ukraine will, that will be able to use violent speech, I guess, um, concerning Russian military. Yeah, I really don't envy them this position. And I guess it shows 
to the, the the sheer scale of Facebook means that these decisions will always feel arbitrary, will always feel devoid of context, will always feel hypocritical. I really don't see a winning move here for them. And, and it does feel weird too that we're talking about one specific platform and we're always debating, you know, sm- sm- tweaks. I mean, this I don't feel like this is a small tweak, but tweaks to one platform. But it exists in an ecosystem and content that's on Facebook is also probably likely in some form on YouTube, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Telegram, on Vcontact, which is like the um, this social media system, uh, Facebook of Russia, supposedly. So, yeah, I really don't envy them the, these kinds of choices. And it, it, it does end up at the end of the day looking messy and hypocritical. And look, I suppose if we're being reasonable, we don't expect these organisations to be static, right? We aren't static as people and the way we, and society and news is changing pretty, <laughs> very fast at the moment. And I suppose it's it's only reasonable to expect that the policies of some of these organisations, um, uh, I mean, you would hope for some degree of like ideological consistency, but at the end of the day, things are changing pretty fast. And I, my, my strong suspicion is uh, we're going to keep talking about it. Uh, but I do believe we are out of time. Uh, Ariel Bogle from ABC Investigations, thank you so much for making the time to chat to us today. Thanks, Mark. And Daniel Van Boom from CNET, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And with that, I shall leave you. Uh, if you enjoyed the program, head along to whichever podcasting app you happen to prefer and leave us a review. My name is Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.